Please turn with me to the Old Testament book of Genesis chapter 1. We'll be reading the first 13 verses. Some Reformed pastors and theologians say that Scripture does not support a creation date that makes the earth any more than about 10,000 years old, a young earth. This word created in verse 1 is used here of God's created activity alone. Context demands, in no uncertain terms, that this was a creation without pre-existing material. A simple decree from God brought the created thing into being. Matter emerged from that which was immaterial. Out of nothing, in an instant, the universe with all its space and matter was made by God's decree. The universe, at least its energy and mass, began to exist in some form. This description of God creating heaven and earth is understood to be recent, that is, thousands, not millions of years ago, ex nihilo, that is Latin for out of nothing, and special, that is, in six consecutive 24-hour periods called days, and is further distinguished as such by the phrase, there was evening and there was morning, quote, unquote, verses 5, 8, and 13. Genesis insists that all the forms of life were created according to its kind, verses 11 and 12. That is, they did not evolve across species lines. While God exists eternally, Psalm 90, verse 2, this marked the beginning of the universe in time and space. We begin reading at Genesis chapter 1. This is God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, 
and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Amen. Please turn with me to New Testament Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. And we'll begin reading at verse 32 through 45. The one danger to discipleship is the desire for the wrong kind of authority within the believing community. James and John were eager for positions of power in Jesus' coming kingdom. It was necessary in this text to reinforce the lesson on greatness. That which the apostles desired cannot be bestowed. It must be earned through humility and service. Jesus warned them that the one who sought position in his kingdom must be ready to drink from Christ's cup and to be baptized with his baptism. In this he, that is Jesus, spoke of complete dedication to God's will and the suffering that this might entail. Jesus warned them, however, to abandon the notion of authority as it was understood in the secular world. There the rulers lorded over others and exercised authority over them, verse 42. It is not to be this way in Jesus' kingdom. The person who is great is the one who gives himself to serve others, even as Jesus came to serve and to give his life. Verses 43 and 44. There is to be no pecking order in the church. The greatest is the lowest, the one who dedicates himself not to be served by those to whom he gives orders, but to give service that they might become all that God wants them to be. We'll begin reading Mark 10 at verse 32. This is God's word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will arise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and, and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, 
You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to him, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Open your Bibles to the 50th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I know that we have been in 1 Corinthians for a lengthy time, and of course I'm certainly aware that we've been in 1 Corinthians 15 for a somewhat lengthy time. Uh, I assure you we are making real progress. I want to just call your attention by way of review that in the first 11 verses, we really have the essentials of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by chosen witnesses, many of whom are listed there. Paul concludes that 11th verse by pointing out whether he's preaching that message or any of the other apostles are preaching that message, it's always the same message. We had a section that we looked at from verses 12 to 19 about what the serious consequences would be if Jesus Christ had not been bodily raised from the dead. The concluding verses of that section said, If he hadn't bodily been raised from the dead, all the hope we have is empty. It is futile. We are still in our sins, and there's no hope for us, which means we are most to be pitied because we aspire to the highest. Last week, I suppose two weeks ago now, we began in verse 20 with the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. And when he was raised... He was raised as the firstfruits of those who have died, who have fallen asleep. And then the explanation is, and it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, because by a man came death. Of course, there's a second man, the second Adam, and through him has also come the resurrection of the dead. But, of course, it has to happen, as verse 23 tells us, each in its own order. Christ was the first fruits. Then, at his coming, all of those who belong to Christ. And then, and only then, will come the end. And that end will involve him delivering up that kingdom to the Father. And then himself to the Father. 
that God may be all in all. That's how verse 28 concludes. Incidentally, that's also how your Bible concludes. So in the, from verse 20 to verse 28, we see the range from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22. The whole Bible story is there. This is what it's always been about. And the, the minor incursions of human history in the midst of all this and the great and mighty men and great and mighty events that swept across the world and the ages fall somewhere between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22. And the same individual has been ultimately in charge the whole time. What is man that thou art mindful of him, O God? What an amazing thing. Now, Paul's argument for the bodily resurrection from the dead ends at verse 28. But of course, it's going to lead to a lot of questions. Perhaps before we get to the questions, we should pray for wisdom. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we, we thank you for the gift of your word, for its clarity. For, for in many ways, it's simplicity. The words simply mean what they say they mean. Lord, men work at confusing us. Men work at finding hidden meanings. Men work at explaining away things that, that they don't fit with the modern mind. Lord, the modern mind is nothing compared to the mind of God. We have been given by your spirit the mind of Christ. We have been given the spirit of God that we may compare spiritual things with spiritual things and be led into a greater and more mature understanding of you. Lord, none of us claims perfection. And yet you are perfect and you have granted us measures of understanding. So today as we, as we work our way through this text, as we perhaps in our own minds ask some of these same questions, Lord, let us read with understanding. Let us hear with, with clarity the explanation that this is, this is your truth. Lord, use this to build up our faith that we may better represent you before a watching world, before a world that denies your very existence and yet fears fears that you may really be there. Lord, we rejoice in the reality that we, we know our place in Christ. Lord, we fear death because it's, it's a great unknown. And yet, you have attained the victory over death. So in that light with confidence, we read, we grow, we understanding, we love, and we serve you. Use this time for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. What we're going to see in the next uh, two paragraphs, actually, we'll only probably cover the first this morning, is a series of questions. Some are very sincere. Some are absolutely insincere. Uh, kind of depends who's asking and what the motives are. Paul has laid out the rationale for all believers that there will be a bodily resurrection from the dead. It is premised entirely upon the fact that Jesus Christ himself experienced a bodily resurrection from the dead. He said, listen, they, they thought he was a spirit. He said, listen, a spirit doesn't have flesh and blood. 
Here, feel me. Touch me. Put, put your hand, put your finger in the holes in my palms and stick your hand in my side. Oh, by the way, have you got anything to eat? And then he ate in front of them. A spirit doesn't have flesh and blood. But in the light of all that, Paul then asks his readers a question. And well, the, next, the, the first line we'll consider here, in the history of Christian theology, there's at least 200 explanations for. We don't have time for all those. In fact, we don't have time for hardly any of those. There's, there's only about two dozen that anybody thinks has any warrant whatsoever. But it looks to me like... It's pretty obvious. We will see. Somewhere that Paul knows about and that the Corinthians know about, there are individuals who are being baptized on behalf of the dead. Look at verse 29. Paul's laid out the case. There is going to be a bodily resurrection for all believers, for everybody really, because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he says, otherwise... Why would people, what do they mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, I sent out a, an email to everybody in the church yesterday uh, because I Googled something about the Mormons, and then that one thing leads to another. The next thing you know, you know, I'm, I know a lot more than I ever needed to know, to tell you the truth. But it turns out that there's a lot of Mormon theology that's based upon that particular verse. Well, let me point out some other things. There's, there's problems just with the words themselves. When Paul says baptized, does he mean that literally? Or does he mean that metaphorically? You remember, there's a big word. Jesus Christ told James and John, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to experience? And they said, oh, yeah, we can do that. Was he talking about getting in the baptismal tank and being dunked? No, he was speaking metaphorically. All right. For instance, when Jesus, before his death, said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it be accomplished. Was he talking about, I need to get baptized before this thing's done? No, he's talking about, he's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking metaphorically about baptism there. Okay, so when Paul says, what do people mean about being baptized on behalf of the dead? Are they talking literally or are they talking metaphorically? I think... I think, obviously, he knows people that are doing this. The Corinthians know people who are doing this. Pretty clearly, the Corinthians are not doing this, because if there were people in the Corinthian church that were doing this, then we'd have another chapter in, chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15 in which Paul was laying out all the reasons why they shouldn't be doing that. But he knows the people that are doing it, and they know what people are doing it. So I do think he's not talking metaphorically. He's talking about people who are literally... Being baptized for people who have already died. And of course, as soon as, you, as soon as that came to mind, I started thinking about some really good people I've known over the years 
who were Mormons. Good family people, very sincere people, very dedicated people. Uh, I always liked having them work for me because they were very reliable. Uh, they didn't lay out all night like other Marines would do. They were, they were there in the morning. They were fresh and new and ready to go. Do you know, Mormons have an interesting play on things like this. The Mormon church really cares about its ancestors. They trace their family trees. They want to know ancestors as far back as they can go, <coughs> particularly ancestors that go back before the Mormon church came into existence. Ancestors who died before the gospel got to them because they believe that in some way they can be baptized by proxy for those ancestors. Now, why would anybody believe that? Why do they believe that? Well, here's their explanation kind of in a nutshell. They don't think it would be just of God to condemn anybody to hell who never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. That sounds perfectly reasonable. Hmm? Second point, when Christ died, 1 Peter 3.19 tells us, he went and preached to the spirits in Hades, the spirits in prison. They say when that, in fact, that's part of the Apostle Creed. Say that when he did that, they believe, what he did was he went down and he called and commissioned the righteous spirits that were there so that they would become preachers of righteousness and preach to the other spirits that were there that if they would just put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, they'd be almost there. The problem was they weren't baptized. But there were people on earth who could go through as many as 20 baptisms a day, if necessary, to cover that area of their salvation, and then they're in. It sounds a little fantastical, and I'm sure I didn't do it justice. And, and, and the, like I say, these are very good, kind, sincere people. But is it any stranger than the idea that individuals could offer up prayers to Mary? Our various saints on behalf of dearly departed ones are uh, perhaps offer significant monetary contributions in order to shorten their time in, in some supposed purgatory? You know, there's another major religious group that teaches that. It has been teaching it for centuries, not just a couple, not just 200 years like the Mormons. Purgatory is an absolute fiction. It's got no biblical warrant whatsoever. Okay, so what's all this about? Shouldn't believers be baptized? Absolutely, believers ought to be baptized. Method and mode is for another day. But yes, they ought to be identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What if they aren't? Does that mean they can't be saved? The thief on the cross wasn't. There are people that are too frail, right at death's door, uh, that for, for any number of reasons just can't be, given the circumstance in which they come to the faith. It doesn't cost them their salvation. But let me ask this. What if they won't be baptized? What if they're believers, but I'm just not going to do that? 
Is that different? How important is baptism? Well, if we went back to look at those first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, you would see, you know, baptism isn't in there. It's his death for our sins according to the scriptures. It's his resurrection from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the message that was preached. In fact, if we look all the way down there into verse 17, we find out Paul says, I didn't come here to Corinth to preach baptism. I came to preach the gospel. So baptism is not an essential of the gospel. But what if someone won't? Just absolutely refuses. Right, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer. I come to church. I pay my tithes. I'll pray with you guys. I'll sing with you guys. I'm just not going to go through that humiliation. Is that a problem? If it's a problem, it's a real problem. It's a heart problem. I, I'm, I'm not talking to anybody here. I, don't have, I have no idea if anybody has that sort of an idea in their mind, but that's a real problem. Because that is an unsubmissive heart. No matter what it thinks about its condition, it is not yielding itself to the authority of Scripture and the Spirit of God. Paul is now raised. Why would Paul raise that kind of a question at this point in his argument? I think the clearest reason would be that he's pointing out, you know, even non-Christians believe there's some form of life after death. Everybody believes that. You know, when you watch A Christmas Carol every third year because you forgot, uh, no matter which version you watch, you see the three ghosts. And none of them look terribly attractive, to tell you the truth. And that's probably your idea in some way of what the afterlife would be. That's not a Bible. If, if you watch, and I've seen any number of commercials for a series on one of our networks called Ghosts, in which people seem to be dressed up like various historical characters, but I guess they're all dead, and it's a comedy. And I'm, I'm sure it's very popular and people are really enjoying it. And Maybe people have the idea that's what life is going to be when we're raised. Everybody believes something happens after death, and they pretty well assume there's life after death. Paul's just kind of making that point. And that's why no matter where you go in the world, if you dig up ancient graves, you find there's jewelry, there's tools, sometimes there's pets, sometimes there's servants in there with them, because everybody kind of thought always, there's a life after death, I'm going to need this stuff. Paul's making the point. Everybody knows, and wise people fear the reality that there is life after death. So see, there's, it's a real question he's asking because he wants people to think, wants those Corinthians to think. And then he asked a couple of questions out of his own ministry experience. Why are we, why am I in danger every hour? Why do I live such a dangerous life is what Paul is saying here. Now think about the life Paul has lived. We have a great deal of it recorded for us in the book of Acts. We've gone through the book of Acts over a, a couple of years here, a number of years ago. So to just refresh your memory, Paul and Barnabas started that first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, tell us about it, across southern Turkey. 
They were kind of moving toward Paul's hometown in Tarsus. Well, they started on the western end at a place called Antioch, Pisidia. Things went really well. The people really wanted to receive it. But then a bunch of Jews got really worked up. They didn't like the message. They got everything stirred up, so they had to leave town in a hurry. That's the pattern for Paul. They go to a place called Iconium. Again, things go very well. I say they go very well because churches get established there. But they run out of town there pretty quick, too. They go down the road to a place called Lystra. There at Lystra, they have a wonderful reception because they heal a guy and the people say, you must be gods. Well, after they get that all straightened out, uh, the, they begin to witness these people and, and it's gaining ground. The next thing you know, people come from the West and say, oh no, they, these people cause trouble everywhere. Got the people all worked up and you know what it looks like in the Middle East when people get all worked up? The next thing we know, Paul is being stoned to death in the city of Lystra by people who know how to stone people to death. And when they leave him, they think he's dead. And I'm not going to argue he wasn't dead. But I do know the scriptures tell us that after the crowd cleared away, he got up and went back into town and visited a little and strengthened the saints. And then they made their way back across Turkey and established elders in each of the churches they'd planted. We know that a couple of, a couple of years, maybe three or four years later, in Acts 16 and 17, Paul and a, another fellow traveler named Silas were in the Roman colony capital of Philippi. Things were going really well there. A woman like Lydia got saved, opened her house to the, to the church there. Uh, things are going along just wonderfully. Then Paul cast the demon out of a girl that was being used by, by men to make money. And everything broke loose. The next thing you know, Paul and Silas have been beat up by people who know how to beat people up. Judicial beatings, that was part of the process there. And they're thrown in prison. This is the whole place where the earthquake has to happen. And it happens in the middle of the night, and they're, and they're singing hymns, and the jailer wants to kill himself because the prisoners got away. And Paul says, don't do any harm to yourself at all. We're all still here. And they were. The jailer runs in and says, what do, what do I have to do to be saved? He says, you need to believe the gospel. You've been hearing me here about this. And, and you need to get baptized. Interesting that he mentioned that at that particular point because they were baptized that night, him along with his household. And they're publicly identifying this guy that the whole city wanted beat up and thrown in prison. Paul leaves there, goes to Apollonia, goes a little further west over to Amphilia, goes a little further west to Thessalonica. He's there at the most three weeks before again the Jews get all worked up, run him out of town, runs down to Berea. Uh, same thing kind of happens there. He ends up in Athens. When he gets in Athens, he, he ultimately gets an opportunity to speak in the great forum up on Mars Hill. And when he finishes doing his absolute best for the Christian apology, he is mocked and scoffed at by the vast majority of people there. Probably left there pretty discouraged. Though the scriptures do tell us by name of individuals who were saved during that encounter. But there's no evidence Paul knew a whole lot about that. He moves on to Corinth. And in Corinth, when he arrives there, according to Acts 18, 9, he's scared. Why would he be scared? Because everywhere he goes, he gets beat up, thrown in prison, run out of town. He's in fear for his life. And probably once at least he's been stoned to death. 
That's why he'd be afraid. Jesus Christ appears to him in a vision and says, don't be afraid. I'm not going to let anybody here hurt you. I've got many people in this city, the city of Corinth. That's the city Paul's writing this letter to. And he's writing to them from Ephesus, by the way. He says, why do, you, why do you think I live so dangerously? Why do I take so many risks? Why am I always putting myself in a place to be hurt, possibly to be killed? In fact, he'll expand upon that in verse 31. He says, I, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a sense in which I'm dying every day. I never know when I wake up in the morning whether I'm going to see the sundown. In fact, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. We're not, we're not even partially through with what Paul's been through. But just to point out a, a few other things here, beginning in verse 21. He says, whatever else anyone dares boast of, and I'm speaking as a fool, I'm, I, I dare to boast of these things. He says, are the people Hebrews? Well, I'm a Hebrew. Are they Israelites? I'm an Israelite. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. What do you mean I'm a better one? He said, well, am I, am I talking like a madman? No, I've had far greater labors. And then verse 23, I've had far more imprisonments. I've been with, gone through countless beatings. I was often near death. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 39 lashes. Now, that would be an extremely painful experience. Just take a good wooden dowel and slap yourself on the leg with it and see what, you feel, what it feels like. But 39 of those, five different times. It was illegal to do 40. It's the only reason you didn't get more. Right? Uh, three times I was beaten with rods. That's a whole lot different. Those are bone breakers. Once I was stoned, we kind of know about that. Three times I was shipwrecked, and once I had to spend a day and a night adrift at sea. Those three times were before the shipwreck in Acts 27. We don't have any record of those shipwrecks, but that was not good. I was on frequent journeys. I was never steady anywhere. I was on da in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false witnesses. I was always in toil and hardship. I had sleepless nights. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I didn't have food. I was cold. I was exposed. Great life. Great Christian living going on there, isn't it? And on top of all that, he says in the very next verse, I have the daily pressure, which is my anxiety, my cares for the churches that I've planted and the Christians that are in them. And Paul, why would I go through all that? Why, why would I live this kind of life? Why would I put myself in a place where this sort of thing was just always happening to me? Would you? I mean, most of us, this is not what we'd sign up for. It may be what the Lord brings into our life, and then we will have choices to make. But Paul said, that's what Paul says. Why would, I, why would I live like this? He says in verse 32, what do I gain if I've had to fight with the beasts, humanly speaking, if I had to fight with the beasts at Ephesus? 
He is writing from Ephesus to Corinth. Now, we don't have any record of him being thrown to the beasts. Uh, he's probably speaking metaphorically again. He, he might be talking about things like a pack of dogs being set on him. That was very popular with the Wesley boys. Uh, the, the, the guys in town, you know, here comes that Wesley guy again. Let's get the dogs out and sick them on him. Uh, but he's probably talking about beastly men. You know, Jesus sometimes referred to men as beasts. He called Herod himself a sly fox. Satan refers to this, uh, Peter refers to Satan as a roaring lion. What's really going on there? Paul says, just concluding that, that 32nd verse, what do I gain if I had to fight with the beast? If it's just a constant struggle here in Ephesus. He says, if the dead are not raised, why don't we just eat and drink because tomorrow we die? That was a, a great American advertising jingle. You only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto. And they sold a lot of beer. We might as well just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, that's actually a quotation from Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22, verse 12. I think verse 13, I'm sorry. But the context of that is this. Isaiah's writing about 700 B.C. about events that are going to happen in 585 B.C. when the city of Jerusalem is going to be sacked by Nebuchadnezzar. And he is giving a warning from God that in that day the Lord God of hosts will call for weeping and mourning and baldness and wearing sackcloth. But instead, the people will respond with joy and gladness and killing oxen and slaughtering sheep and eating flesh and drinking wine and saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I'm going to send out a message this afternoon. It's entitled, Breaking the Cycle of Intergenerational Perversity. And it's going to describe our culture by two Puritan writers from the 1600s who are responding to the crises of our time exactly like the Jews did in Isaiah 22, 13. Let's just amuse ourselves to death. Let's pretend everything's going to work out all right. Paul is asking if the dead don't rise, why am I living like this? Why would I be going through all this? Why would I do these sort of things? His final epistle. He's in, in prison at least the second, probably the third time. He's writing young Timothy, maybe still in Ephesus. He knows this is his final epistle. He knows he's facing almost a sure death. He knows he's going to be killed as a criminal. He writes in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He's the offspring of David. Remember him as he's preached in my gospel. It's that for which I am suffering. It's that for which I am bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything. For the sake of the elect. Now what are you going to do with that word? 
If they're elect, what's the problem? Aren't all the elect going to be in heaven? Yes. How are they going to hear the gospel? People are going to have to lay themselves on the line and be used of God and go into difficult situations and be at least uncomfortable and tell them, you're going to face God one day. There is life after death. You can't escape that. You can choose to live life as you want now, eat, drink, and be merry, but you will die, and after death comes a reckoning. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Why? That they may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's why Paul did it. And that's the point he's making to the Corinthians. I live the kind of life I live because I know everyone's ultimately going to be resurrected. And I want as many as possible to stand before the Lord as redeemed people for the glory of God. Now turn with me to two passages in 2 Timothy. And I want to show you something very, very serious. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Again, Paul, this is his final epistle because he's kind of wrapping things up here. He says, Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's the positive part. But avoid irreverent babble, because it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And then their talk will spread like gangrene. And then he names two people. He says among people that, it, that that's happened to, are Hymenaeus and Philetus. He says they have swerved from the truth. How did they swerve from the truth? By saying that the resurrection has already happened. By saying it's happened and you missed it. By obviously not believing in a bodily resurrection, because otherwise we've seen all these people around us. But denying a bodily resurrection, that somehow a spiritual resurrection has happened. There are people running around today in pulpits teaching this. He says, they're unsettling the faith of some. How serious is that? Well, turn back to 1 Timothy 1.18. And I'll show you how serious it is. 1 Timothy 1.18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, which is what ministering the word of God is. Holding faith and a good conscience. Because rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And look whose name is first on the list, Hymenaeus. Now, how serious was what Hymenaeus was doing? We know what he was doing because he was telling people falsehoods about the resurrection. And apparently he continued to do it. How serious was it? It was so serious, Paul says, both he and Alexander, I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
When was the last time we heard Paul direct the church of God to turn somebody over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh to perhaps be able to save their soul? It was that great offense of adultery in 1 Corinthians 5 when the man was having a relationship with his father's wife. And Paul just informed us that denying the bodily resurrection is as the sin of an adultery that even pagans don't accept. That's the way Paul described the man. It is a serious thing. The bodily resurrection is central to the gospel and central to our faith. Paul concludes this paragraph, verses 33 through 35, with three imperatives. These are commands. These aren't suggestions. He says, don't be deceived. I mean, don't be fooled about this. And what does he say we should not be fooled about? Bad company ruins good morals. Hanging around with the wrong crowd. Running with the wrong people. Listening to the accounts of the ungodly, as the Psalms would say in, verse one, in chapter 1, verse 1. Another way to say this would be, beware the values of your culture. There is no more powerful influence over your life than your peer group. And there's no more powerful influence over the lives of your children than their peer group. Think about that. I mean, you, you, walk, you go, man, look, my kids aren't control compared to that. Well, that's a greater influence than you are in many cases. Our culture is an adverse influence to Christianity. The first imperative, do not be deceived. Beware cultural values. Bad company ruins good morals. Next imperative, wake up from your drunken stupor. As is right, as is righteous. You're just going through life in a daze, is what he's saying. You're going through life as though you don't realize what's really going on. You need to wake up. We need to wake up. The church in America needs to wake up. Amen. And if you do wake up, you'll realize that there's a lot of things you need to repent of, and then you need to not go on sinning. That's the third imperative. It's right there in verse 34. Was, was it so important? Why are these, any of these, all these things so important? He concludes that verse by saying, you know, there are people right here in Corinth who have no knowledge of God. There are people right here in Suffolk who have no knowledge of God. Now, they all say they're Christians. Everybody in Walmart right now says they're Christian. And they were in church 10 minutes ago. That's how they know they're Christians. They, they got a church. You ask them where they go to church, they all got a church. Paul says, there are some who have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Because you have a responsibility as a believer, as a follower of Christ, to bear witness to the reality of your faith, to the reality of Jesus Christ, to the reality of a bodily resurrection. I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. 
writing a book, an apologetic book called The Weight of Glory, describing humanity. He said it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, the most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, they may be a horror and a corruption, such as if you would now meet, it would only be in a terrible nightmare. He says, all day long, we are to some degree helping each other to one or the other of those destinations. It's in the light of those overwhelming possibilities, with the awe and circumspection proper to them, thinking about the reality that everybody's going to live forever in one of those conditions, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all our friendships, all our loves, all our play, all our politics. And that, that, that stings me as much as it does you. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures and arts and civilizations, they're mortal. They rise up and they fall and they die. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. It's kind of where I started this message, isn't it? But it's immortals that you joke with, that you work with, that you marry, that you snub, that you exploit. And they are either immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, who is sufficient for such things? Lord, the glories that are destined to be ours are beyond our imagining. But the horrors that we escaped are equally beyond our imagining. Lord, burden our hearts for the lost. Burden our hearts for the, the weak and feeble in the faith. Burden our hearts to, to more consistently live out our faith, to walk worthy of our calling, to speak a word in due time, not to, not to be hammering people over the head with the gospel, but to be witty and winsome and kind and gracious and consistent. Help us, Lord, to be known as people that are decidedly different in a culture that lived for itself. It's making merry because it has no hope beyond this life. Lord, use these questions of Paul, these sincere questions meant to spark our thinking, meant to ignite in our minds concentration upon these deep things to shape and to mold us for more effectual weapons in your hands, that your name may be glorified. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.